Hello, and welcome to Housing Our New Zealand. I'm Tom Simonson, Program Manager for LGNZ's Housing 2030 program. Today we're going to be talking about the subject of what every councillor should know about New Zealand's growing socio-economic imbalance and the resulting impacts of housing insecurity on our communities. To really successfully talk about this subject, we need to bring Kay Seville-Smith from the Centre for Research Evaluation and Social Assessment, or CRESA, into the conversation. If you don't know Kay, you should. She's a member of the Healthy Housing Program at Otago University, a research leader in the Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities National Science Challenge with a particular focus on affordable housing. She's led public good science-funded programs such as Aging in Place, and she's a trustee for the Marlboro Sustainable Housing Trust, among many other roles. She's extensively published as well. Thank you, Kay, for coming to the podcast. Why do you think egalitarianism matters in general, and particularly for councils? Thanks, Tom. I think it's an interesting problem about what are the communities that we are trying to create. And of course, councils have a major uh, leadership function in that, as well as managing the communities that are on the ground. And if you have communities that are highly unequal, if you have communities in which people are excluded and marginalised, that has all sorts of effects for councils. One is it's not very good for their rating base. That's the first thing. You've got a whole lot of people that need assistance but are unable to contribute to the, their optimum ability. So we're actually wasting the human capacity that we have in our communities. And for councils, it's really important that people are given that opportunity, given life chances that allow them to contribute both socially and economically. And that, to me, is one of the fundamental things for councils, is to provide framework, community connections, that they can do that. And housing is important in that, is because housing is the basis of people's lives. And if they don't have a stable base, if they can't get their kids to school properly and in a stable sort of way, if they can't actually even and find a place within a community so that they're shuttling in and out of it. That destabilises those communities and it destabilises councils and puts pressures on those communities which in fact don't need to be there. So if you see housing as infrastructure as opposed to just housing or a commodity, even worse, just seeing housing as a commodity that markets churn around. If we see it as part of our infrastructure, it has both social and economic benefits. And most importantly, in the past, we've seen that as an important part of being a fair society, an inclusive society, and a society that uses people's talents and capacity. And surely that's what councils want to do. And most certainly because the well-beings have been put back into the Local Government Act, mm. therein councils have something to fall back on. Mm. They, they have the social the economic, and other imperatives to fall back and say, this is our rationale and this is why we're engaging on this subject to ensure that there is this measure of egalitarianism. Mm. So what is affordable housing and why is it important to count? Really? <laughs> well, everyone thinks they know what affordable housing is and most people think that they haven't got it. In technical terms, affordable housing is that low end, is housing that is affordable to the 40% of lowest households. However, we in New Zealand, since certainly over the last decade, and actually due to things that happened even before that, have now got a problem 
around the affordability of housing for what we call the missing middle, the middle income households who in the past with a small amount of assistance could provide for themselves. These are often people who are key workers in our communities, nurses, teachers in the community in which I live, um, supervisory staff for the vineyards, a growing industry are really one of the main key workers in that community, but they can't get housing that is affordable to them, so it's, it's even in the rental market. And so there is an issue about affordability, which is not just about affordable housing, but affordability for key workers. And that's something that we see actually nationally. It's not something that's just about Auckland. We've spent you know, 30 or 40 years worrying about Auckland, and rightly so, because it is a national problem. But the reality is that those problems of housing, which we often identify with Auckland, are spread right throughout New Zealand, and all councils really have to front up to those and deal with those problems if they're going to keep their economies humming along, if they're going to get good social connection, if they can get good well-being out of their communities. But this isn't the first time that New Zealand has really kind of addressed this issue. In 1988, uh, New Zealand Housing Commission said we had some pockets of serious housing need that we need to address. But generally, New Zealand was a world leader in the access of housing. So what changed since that time? I, yes, I, I often reflect on that myself, and I've been thinking a lot about that in the context of... Um, the national science challenges. And I reflect on it too when I've been overseas because I used to be able to go overseas and I'd talk about serious housing and I'd say, oh, poof, you, you haven't got a problem there, okay? Don't, don't worry about it. Now we are so far behind. Even where there is, uh, it's agreed to be that there are housing crises, we haven't got the tools. So that has then made me think about my council's really have been the margins of that is because we're such a small society and such a dispersed society so it was consolidated as a national function really. Um, councils were the beginnings of social housing in New Zealand. Patoni is proud, they provided some public housing and so forth. But where council really became focused in the 1950s, 1960s was through providing pensioner housing. And interestingly enough, in those days, it was really for old men. It was for men who weren't attached to families and they'd been working out in the outback and they'd been doing forestry or building roads and dams and things. They'd come to town because they'd retired. Uh, they had high mileage because very challenged physically, but also they probably had a lifestyle that was pretty challenging too. Um, and they needed places to live. And, and the council housing was really one way of meeting that. Whereas, of course, since then, it's shifted towards providing for women. And that's partly because women live longer. But it's also partly because of the, the way in which women are also vulnerable in terms of their economic um, uh, conditions. Often they have poor income. So if they don't get into housing early as part of a family, then they actually are even more straitened circumstances than many men. So, but what happened really was a, a partnership about providing housing for a specific group of people that the state didn't want to provide centrally um, as part of the state housing. All of that capital funding uh, has really disappeared, like much of the funding that went into the community sector. And there's been a huge drop-off um, 
1990 on. And along with that, uh, the building industry is no longer producing affordable housing at that low end of the market. It was good, it was well-performing housing. It's not bad housing. It's just for affordable, modest housing. And there was a group within the building industry that did that. And in the 1960s or thereabouts, you would have, you know, 40% of um, the new builds done at that low, those lower quartiles of value. So what do councils do about that? I don't think provision, them directly providing, I'm not saying they should be selling up their pensioner's stock, I have to say quickly, because I know that is a tendency. I don't think that's always a good solution. I can understand why some councils would do that, particularly under the new income-related rents, um, that there's been some anxiety around that. So I'm not talking about selling up. But councils certainly can f provide a better framing of housing provision that they, than they have in the past. And I think you can see some councils who have been very, very active in creating funding mechanisms that have allowed community trusts to be funded to provide affordable housing. Queenstown Lakes is an obvious one, and they've been very, very clever at it. They've been very successful at it. It hasn't cost the council a lot, but it's made sure that they've got the key workers who are low-income workers, actually, in that community in tourism. So, so let me jump on that point just a little bit, because I, you hit on something that I think every councillor might want to know a little bit more about, is that framing. The first thing is that they're brave, and that they put their own community first, and they think about the public good in a very broad sense. So they go back to the idea of if you're going to have a thriving economy, and if you're going to protect the environment, everybody is in that, everybody's there together. Some people might want A, some people might want B, but the council's role is to try and get some sort of agreement about a way forward. And those councils that have been good in housing have put housing into that debate. So they've been, they've, they've, they've said it's important. And one of the things that you really notice particularly under the RMA, is that if there's um, developers tend to actually, even though they argue against this at times, they tend to like quite clear rules around things, not rules in the old Town and Country Planning Act rules, you know, dreadful rules that meant nothing and no <laughs> one could follow, right. but rules in terms of certainty. If you meet this mark, we will assist you in this way. Those things are quite important to developers. It gives them certainty. They might not like the rule that you've got, but they will work with it because they see an advantage in doing it. So that's the second thing. It's clarity to the key actors about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. So the two things. The third thing is that I think councils that perform well in this um, environment or this very difficult environment for the last, certainly the last 10 years and even before that one could argue, is that they, um, they don't see strategy as just aspirational. There's been a great thing, so, oh, well, we've got to change things and we've got to have aspirational targets that means that we will strive further to, you know, perform those and will increase well-being and, you know, have more vibrant communities. The other story that goes with aspirational times is, oh, well, we never thought that was really practical anyhow. That was just aspirational. Let's not bother. So 
The thing that is really important about strategy is that strategy has to be meaningful. And to be meaningful, it has to have a way of doing something practical on the ground. There's no having lots of strategies that do not provide a clear pathway or a roadmap to where you want to go. So there's a lot about, oh, there's not enough strategic thinking. My experience and my observation of, of both councils and, in fact, central government is we have strategies coming out of our ears um, and we therefore feel quite comfortable about not meeting them. So I think that's the third thing. And then the final thing I think in it is that you want to encourage and enable players to get stuff done. So the issue is not to take it out of their hands, it's actually to provide that ability for people to make good investment, make good decisions and get assistance where they need it. And there's often a lot of conversations it seems to me about worrying and it is a it is that concern about public money. And I think that is a concern. You always do have to be worried about public money. Um, but sometimes it's the idea of being concerned about public money gets in the way of thinking about what is the good investment of that, what is going to be the return if we take that risk. And there is risk involved and housing is not cheap. Supporting those that provide the housing that you need in your community. High value housing will happen of itself. It will always the market will work itself out there. It's in the middle and the low ends of the market that it doesn't, and that's where council needs to be thinking about how does it assist that. Two other things that are, are those, so those are the four, if you like, principles. Okay. Things, but there's two other very practical things that I think councils can do. The first thing is that you need to think about how can we help owners rather than just developers, to redevelop, reconfigure, use their land more effectively and ensure that they get some of the shared benefits of that, right. not just have people clipping the ticket of that. Councils don't do that very well. They tend to feel more comfortable with developers who they see as professional. Right. And that's an right. interesting <clears throat> issue. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is when the RMA came in, Lots changed, but some things didn't. And in many district plans, some rules just got essentially turned over into the new regime. Um, and one of the areas in which that happened is in, around um, accessory dwelling units. The use of single sites, single titles for adding dwellings to. And so we have lots of opportunities to provide more housing better sized housing often by the use of accessory dwelling units and it's a, a fantastic place for prefab because it is you can, but you couldn't you can't do that in new zealand really because every jurisdiction has different rules around it they really are however from the old town and country planning act they're all about relationships so councillors should be looking at that and thinking about the best pathways to enable Exactly. People who own their own property say, I can put an accessory structure on this. This is what it looked like. And I know for a fact that the, the Science Challenge has actually done a little bit of yeah. research on that yeah. subject to try and streamline and see where those barriers yeah. might exist. Okay. Can you speak a little bit of the fact that there are these barriers exist and what maybe councils could be doing to address some of them? Well, I think the, the very first barrier that we will, I think, is very widespread in New Zealand is that homelessness and housing need and they're not quite the same but 
you know, let's put them in that packet together, is all about the failure of individuals that are burdened by it. And it's absolutely the opposite in general to that. There is a very small group of people who have always been um, evident and, and often are very, very vulnerable, are in those situations because they have particular pathologies, that they're unwell in some way, they might have mental health illness, they might have an addictions illness, there might be something else that's happened within their life history which has made them essentially withdraw from the mainstream housing market. But they're a very, very small proportion. And indeed, before you know, 1990, they were catered through, through a whole series of housing contracts and indeed through, in Wellington of course, Wellington City Council, was one of the few councils that had an, a, essentially a relationship with government that said you don't just have to build pensioner housing, you can build a wider range of housing for very vulnerable people in need. So people in, who are very vulnerable have a multiplicity of problems, do need support, there's no doubt about that. But the vast majority of people that who, who are in precarious housing or can't meet their needs in an affordable way are not in that group. They may become in that because of their housing, unmet housing need, but they don't start there. Um, and it's a very, it's, it's important that we remember that when we're thinking about the sort of settings that work for people. Uh, and councils, it's very important that we do that. Uh, and one of the things that is, I think, very problematic when we get to the very difficult stage that we've got to in New Zealand, and some councils will be feeling this very extremely, is when you've got major groups of people who are homeless, and council often has to deal with that and the fallout of that, even to the issues about, well, should they be sleeping on the street or not? Should we do something about that? Should we actually put a whole lot of um, uh, uh, street furniture, design it in a way that people can't sleep on it at night? You know, all of those things ripples through to council. Um, but one of the things that it's really important to recognise is that homelessness is important, but you can try and deal with homelessness, but unless you deal with the other issues about ensuring that people can actually house themselves, so there's a sort of two strategy and it's important that councils don't just think about this as dealing with the most vulnerable people in our community who are homeless, it's about a broader issue of getting a decent housing system in the community. That's quite a hard narrative because we've been fed a different sort of narrative for yep. quite a long time For a now. long time now. And then there's another sort of set of people I think that there is the idea that once you're a homeowner, and it's sort of the, 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 the other side of the coin, isn't it? If you're in housing needs, you know, it's your fault. There's one, the other side of that coin is that if you're not in housing needs, you're a jolly good person and you've done well and that sort of thing. Right. Actually, people of my generation are in their 60s now. Yes, we have worked hard, many of us, and we've had the opportunity to do so because we were brought up within a sentence in housing. So if you talk to people of my age, many of those people would have got into housing because they were able to do things like capitalise their family benefits and so forth. The problem that we now have around the entitlement issue is twofold. One is that young people think those old people are kicking us out of the housing market and they're, you know, those baby boomers are selfish, horrible people and they've had a good suck of the salve and when are they stopping us having that? You know, that's one problem. Uh, 
it's not a narrative that I like particularly, but again, an understandable narrative for young people who are, are, are largely blocked out of housing, even rental housing. So it's not just about home ownership, getting decent rental housing. But the other one is that we've worked hard to get our house in the way or our home in the way we want, or we're a property owner, we might own a number of properties, and it's the job of council to make sure that the lifestyle that we think that we've worked for and chosen is preserved. And council runs a very fine line through those sorts of things. And so that some of the debates around intensification, for instance, are about that feeling that that's going to undermine the entitlement to comfortable use and amenity and rights of people that are homeowners. To me, this wraps right back to what you were talking about, what councils can be doing and coming up with a very clear strategy, uh, one that can be achievable, um, one that shows a little bit of bravery within it, and one that's somewhat streamlined so you can get your head around what the outcomes really look like. And it seems like councils really do need to take their people, their constituents on a journey with them so that everybody's uplifted by it, mm. not just some are getting some benefit from the rate and others are paying for it, but it's actually a key effort because it takes a village, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's one of the problems because councils have been largely, until very recently, in the last three or four years really, I guess, five years maybe, have been largely pushed out of the housing you know, central government health is not really your business, you know. The best you can do is make sure that planning lets everyone build what they need to build really quickly. And actually, we know that actually planning constraints aren't the main barrier no. to the provision of housing. Um, there are some councils, and I won't name them, that have not particularly good records about getting things through plans quickly and getting the processes around consenting both RMA and building consent sorted well and they need to do that that's a, you know the very first thing you need to do is make sure that you do what is clearly your, your business properly and efficiently and making sure people can can you know operate well but Actually, the whole councils have taken a pretty big knock on the idea that it's their planning systems, essentially the public planning system, that has held land back from being released, that hasn't allowed redevelopment and so forth. None of the evidence shows that. Um, and indeed, one, the, one of the areas which councils actually have very little control over is the issue of covenants and the imposition of covenants on uh, titles which is done from private individuals through a private process. So, you know, you can actually put covenants which have higher requirements on it than the district plan has. Let's be really clear about that, because what you're talking about in terms of a covenant on a title, for those that aren't conversant on the subject, is that there can be an overlay on a property that requires it to meet a certain standard, a design, an intensity, and that actually drives a lot more of what is actually an outcome for a community rather than what that process of the step planning process that a council Absolutely. might go through. That's the initial, very beginning starting point for any council. Yeah. Yeah. And because they're consulting with their community and they have a broad view about how that bit of land use planning relates to a bit of land use planning somewhere else and how they meld together to create a, a, a viable social and economic environment. Yep. Covenants don't do that. 
in general they're about value uplift on a particular site. I think that's something that councils need to be talking to central government about. I think councils have, have tended to have been sort of policy takers for central government. You know, the, here's the policy, you take it and deal with it. I think they need to be working much more closely to be pushing back onto central government and saying, central government, you've got a whole lot of policy settings here which don't work for us. One of them, I think, is covenant. As creatures of statute, you'd, you'd normally assume that they would take the, you know, the, the position of, oh, we're just being told what to do and we're following through, but what you're advocating for is the fact that where these things don't work, councils, and probably through LG and Z, need to be a little bit more vocal and, and highlight the fact that certain places, things just don't work. Mm -hmm. And we need to address those head on if we're going to overcome some of our barriers. Absolutely. What are some of those outcomes that you see or realize? I mean, it? happiness is good, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, I mean, I always like the Danish model because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of collectivist model. But what the Danes have done really well, I think, is that they've dealt with the distribution of inequality. So it's a much more egalitarian society. There are some extremely wealthy people in Denmark. There are some poor, but in general, the tale, if you like, of the very poor and impoverished has been resolved through the provision of health, housing, and um, uh, support for economic activity. And so housing is quite central to that. And what you see, I was recently in Sweden, um, what you see is Sweden is going through what New Zealand went through 20 or 30 years ago now. They're going, pushing it back into essentially relying increasingly on the market. They're selling off some assets, housing assets, which is part of what the community has built up over the years into the private market, they're selling that off. And you can see already they're going down a pathway that we essentially, some of the top performing nations in, in the world, particularly in terms of housing, but not just that in standards of living. And now we're getting, we've got a major, major, major housing crisis. There is a reason for that. You know, we had a big natural experiment. And what that means is that the lack of affordable housing really puts a break on our community. It puts a break on social and, and health services. It puts a break on the expansion of um, certain industries. Uh, and it puts a break on the ability of a council to plan their settlements well because the response to the lack of affordable housing or the, you know, even at the aggregate level, just not enough houses, is that it tends in New Zealand to push us out. And as soon as we push out spatially, councils have to bear the costs of that. They've got roadways, and so it's above ground and below ground. Um, potential for eat up, those are very fertile soils would actually drive some of those communities. I think only recently will Auckland be saying, hmm, what's happening to all of our good soils there? That wasn't just that it feeds New Zealand and also gets us export earnings, but also that was a form of income for us is actually the quick windfall gain from putting housing all of that really a good economic pathway for us as a city. The problem that councils can get into is that the problem becomes so bad and seems to be a crisis, and I think there is a crisis, I, don't, I have no doubt in fact that it's a housing crisis, but we need to not, uh, we need to act in ways which are measured 
and resilient and build a resilient adaptable system for the future not just deal with the crisis which actually is now so large it's almost impossible just to have a quick it's about dealing with the core of the problem, not the symptoms exactly. of it. If you're going to tackle yeah. the cold, you work on the cold, not the, the fever and the yeah. other things that yeah. result from it. Okay, well, this is really, really informative, Kay. Um, for anybody listening, if you have more questions, because obviously we have a fountain of knowledge here, you can reach Kay at k at cressa, C-R-E-S-A dot co dot N-Z. Thank you, Tom. It's been great to talk with you.